We're looking at that collaboration between other like-minded individuals, you know, seeing a world where we have 100% electric vehicles. We have 100% of energy coming from solar winds in the United States, you know, in these clean sources of energy where we have the ability to export solar and wind energy across the state and even across countries. Hello and welcome to the Solar Maverick podcast, where solar meets entrepreneurship and experience. I'm your host, Benoit Thanjan, so let's get into it. Hi, this is Benoit, your host of the Solar Maverick Podcast. I'm excited in this episode of the podcast to interview David. He is the managing member at YSG Solar, which is a solar developer based in New York City that develops behind the meter community solar and utility scale projects. In 2018, Forbes recognized David's leadership and listed him the 30 under 30 list in the energy sector. David has been involved with community solar development since 2015 with over 20 megawatts of residential community solar of executed projects and a 250 megawatt pipeline of utility and DG solar projects. YSG has executed power purchase agreements in New York with clients such as the New York Military Academy, the New York Botanical Gardens, the city of New York, and many other local municipalities, counties, and towns. This was a really interesting podcast. Some of the interesting points that David mentioned was how to develop a good solar project, what markets in the U.S. that he's focusing on for development and what markets he's not, how the grid should be compensated for energy storage and the development cycle of a solar project. David, it was actually on one of our first episodes of the podcast, episode nine, which was a really great interview. It's called How David Started His Solar Company with David from YSG Solar. We'll also have that in the notes of the podcast as well. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Solar Maverick Podcast. Let's get into it. Hi, this is Benoit, your host of the Solar Maverick Podcast. I'm excited to have David Majid, who's the founder and managing partner of YSG Solar. David, welcome to the podcast. Benoit, how's it going? Good. I'm so excited to have you because when we first did our interview, that was episode nine. And now as taping this interview, there's been 111 episodes. I'm glad that we were able to get you on the podcast. I thought that first interview was pretty amazing to learn about your story and how you started YSG. And now like we're focused on more of the development and how to develop a good project, markets to focus on, and energy storage. So I appreciate you making the time. Yeah, no, I'm super excited. And just as we were talking a few moments ago, I can't believe how much great content you have literally put out since we have spoken last on this amazing podcast. So, you know, really super excited to chat with you today. And, you know, like you always say, you know, super excited to just get into it. (laughs) (laughs) For sure. That's how we start the podcast. I'm excited that Dave said it instead of me, which is great. And if you haven't listened to it, you definitely should check out episode nine of the Solar Maverick podcast with David. You really learn like how he got interested in solar and how he started this company and even the many pivots that you had, like specifically with energy efficiency, how when you were actually in college, that's where you learned about solar. You were helping another company start their solar group. Yeah. And then you're also the a top 30 under 30, right? Yeah, Forbes no, energy. it's um, definitely, it's always a roller coaster, you know, still to this day, it's always fun. You know, at the same time, I think folks like us, were always looking to push to the next level, always looking to expand on a personal level, professional level. And for our organizations, folks like us just don't get bored. <laughs> you know, it's not in our DNA. And so with that, you know, always comes that persistence and those ups and downs. So, you know, definitely always enjoy that. 
It would be interesting if you could talk about persistence because I noticed like just from working with you for a very long time, like you're always trying to learn about everything and anything and you're involved in so many different things, even within your own company. Can you talk about like how you have that persistence or, you know, just to learn and to be you know on top of your game? And No, it's actually so funny that you brought that up. I would, uh, <laughs> if anybody were to ask me, you know, what like the absolute most important traits were, I actually would put persistence on seriously, no joke, my top five traits, you know, that are absolutely crucial to any type of success. At the same time, you know, obviously it's easy to talk about persistence, but persistence in my eyes, the way I look at it is working for something for such a constant duration of time and be able to not be distraught, you know, from that sense of failure and just kind of understanding that that's just the nature of the beast. Failure is going to come and, you know, be able to accept that, understand that. And that's just part of the path, you know, not giving up at all. It's just not an option for regardless of what you're doing. Sometimes it could be a strength, you know, sometimes it could be a weakness too, (laughs) you know, because sometimes there is certainly times to stop and to give up. So I feel like it's certainly a balancing act, you know, is what have I learned actually past couple of years too. It's certainly not always about being too, too persistent, but yeah, I think that's just a crucial item and not an easy component, but it's something that we even at YSG at our firm, you know, we just always tried to engrave with everyone, whether it's originating a power contract or a deal, the deal starts, you know, when the other individual says no. <laughs> you know, that, that's actually when you know, the negotiations start, when you're able to understand the negotiation points and where lines are drawn and where they're not. That was really interesting. Yeah, I appreciate you explaining that because that's key. Like persistence is obviously a strong quality to have and to be successful in what you've seen. But sometimes persistence can be negative and failure is a part of life and moving from failure to failure and continuing to have a positive outlook and move forward is huge. And that's great. That's always the struggle, right? Is once you start to be in a situation and you're constantly dealing with those failures, you know, nonstop trickling, especially after kind of pushing forward on in our business and, and many other businesses too. You have such long life cycles going into project development. You could be working on, you know, originating a solar project, executing power contracts, investing all of this money, time, and energy and resources into a project just to find out that something changes, policies change, something shifts, and now your project is dead in the water. And you just really need to be able to accept that and to, you know, literally just move forward and push past that. That's so important as a project developer, being patient, being smart, and, you know, there'll be failure along the way, but to move forward. I mean, I think that's such a crucial component, just looking at the project development business as a whole for the listeners that are familiar and not familiar you know, with the project development business, but really what we're referring to, the business that's involved you know, with typically acquiring real estate site control rights, either through you know, a large acreage parcels of land or large square footage of a rooftop entering into some sort of lease agreement or purchase agreement to construct a solar facility and then enter into a sale to sell the electrons that are being generated from that solar facility. So that's the project development business, just to explain to anybody that may not be familiar. Can you also talk about like YSG Solar in more depth? So YSG was established in 2010 and our background, YSG, you know, our strengths are very focused on energy policy, energy markets, and working as a developer, you know, looking at opportunities and finding ways to collaborate both with municipalities, corporations, and really providing them solutions, you know, such as clean energy through these power purchase agreements and providing them methods to reduce their carbon footprint, align with their ESG and environmental goals, and 
also provide economic savings. So that's kind of one facet is working you know, on that aspect and actual selling and marketing of the power contracts and the project development you know, aspect of this, which definitely aligns very closely, which is a piece of that puzzle, involves you know, YSG going out and acquiring land, entering into these lease contracts, and then working with local municipalities, you know, going through the entitlement process, securing all of the site control permits and approvals, licenses to actually build a solar generating facility, whether that solar facility is, you know, 10 acres of lands or whether that's 100 acres and, you know, getting a project from a point where it's a vacant piece of land where it's nothing to the point where it's a project where there's agreements put in place to actually construct solar facility. Those are just some of the products and services that YSG as a group really offers. And certainly at the same time, we've, as a background, as a group, have always looked at energy policy and understanding really unique attributes about a project. And that's really what got us interested in what gets us interested in a market versus just, you know, hey, there's a piece of land, let's go try to do something. You know, we were really looking for something where there's an edge and something that really stands out. So is that one of the primary ways that you differentiate from other solar developers? I would say I think that is. I think that's probably the biggest reason, Mm -hmm. you know, and just to kind of give an example, something in 2021 we've been working on is we built up, you know, our GIS team and went through a pretty, you know, sniffing exercise of really developing some interesting data points from a lot of the prior projects, you know, that we've been involved in, have worked in, or have been able to gather data from, you know, whether that data was from FERC, which is a federal agency, or from some state agencies. And we've been able to take all these data data points and, you know, really put together a system to find the most optimal opportunities to develop a solar facility. You know, just to give you an example, right now, Benoit and I are, you know, sitting in the middle of New York City in Manhattan and in New York State. Currently, we've been dealing with community solar since it's opened up 2015. So, geez, <laughs> it's been some time, you know, and the market's definitely saturated at this point. But the amount we did an analysis with the state of New York and we basically took all of the data on the electrical lines, understanding where there's capacity on the power lines, the substations. We also took all of the zoning laws. So we took that data. So we understood, hey, these parcels, there's an entry point on the electrical grid. Then what we did was we went and looked at, all right, what's the zoning? You know, Do they have an established zoning law? Is there a moratorium where basically there's a ban for lack of better words? So then we filtered it further. You know, We read through the laws, tried to standardize all those laws just kind of in a table and identify which property had proper zoning laws. Then we took another step and looked at the property taxes, You know, which properties have a precedent of low property taxes. They're not going to be trying to charge an arm and a leg. And those are three of the big items you know, that we've looked at aside from topography and environmental wetland issues you know, that we really looked at to kind of analyze how many sites, prime sites in New York State that are currently available. And the total number was there was only about 900 properties in the entire state of New York that can accommodate a five megawatt project. They all have reasonable property taxes and the town allows solar as an allowed use and fits the rest of the criteria. Yeah, that's pretty innovative to go into that level of detail to find like the ideal site before you (laughs) actually interact with the landowner. Yeah, yeah. So that's kind of the concept is really just gathering all that data, finding the absolute perfect site 
you know, literally exactly what we want. I was hoping that number to be a little bit larger. For sure. No, definitely not. <laughs> um, it's low. But yeah, 900 is the number. I mean, that's the number we know. We've looked at every single property, every single parcel. You know, we studied it. it took a long time, <laughs> a, yeah. a lot longer than I personally wanted it to take. At the same time, you know, when you get onto some of this data on a very granular level like this, dealing with municipalities can get very intricate to have accurate data sources. And especially as properties get transferred to new ownership and also understanding what data may not be accurate and things along those lines. But uh, yeah, you know, that's just an interesting kind of highlight, you know, to kind of understand and just see how we look at project mm-hmm. development, especially in the early stage. And we kind of define that as our market research process. Sure. That's really helpful to understand the market research process. Can you talk like briefly, maybe the steps related to project development? You talked about obviously your market research, you find an ideal land site. Yeah, no, certainly. So market research and that market research, you know, activity will change depending on where we are, what market, you know, we're looking at, you know, as an example, we were talking a bit about New Jersey, our activities in New Jersey are going to be a little bit different in New Jersey. For an example, YSG has an individual on our team with a lot of experience with landfills and has worked at a lot of environmental agencies for 20 plus years. So in New Jersey, we've focused more on landfills and really looked at the policy of what are these regulatory, you know, folks looking for and really trying to take what that regulatory policy is, that blueprint, where the incentives and where the market is, you know, what they're looking to attract and take that recipe and then look at these GIS and all these other data sources and compile, you know, that target profile of these are the people that we want to market. So that's the step one, the market research. But like we just talked about, it's going to vary. It's not, you know, a fluid process from every single state. You know, developing solar in Arkansas, which we'll talk about in a little bit, is a little different, you know, than New York State. So after our market research, like you said, then our next process is either the land acquisition or it could be power acquisition. So some markets, you know, you don't have the ability to just put solar panels in a field and move those electrons over the electrical grid to another party. The solar equipment needs to be right on the same premises of the actual energy buyer. You know, that corporation, that industrial facility, manufacturing facility, or or whoever that buyer of that electricity is. So that's the second step is the acquisition process, whether we're acquiring contract to sell the power or acquiring a lease agreement or a purchase agreement to buy that land or secure those rights. Once after we go through that process and we constantly do this, it's just another refining process of a looking back at all the economics, you know, all the assumptions of the project and what type of assumptions, you know, we can assume and making sure that as a business, you know, this project is going to make sense for us to market. So that process is kind of slowly going through there. And then we also have, you know, various different checkpoints where we're constantly just all huddling up as a team and as a committee and looking at that project to make sure sure you know we understand all of those risks associated with that project and we know how we can mitigate manage all of those risks associated you know with the the development of the project because you know project development can be a, a very you know pricey endeavor and it's very easy to lose money so yeah i would kind of define that as the that second stage right there you know you'll do the environmental and geotechnical yeah there'll also be town permitting that's like the next step too so after we've gone through our you know, what we call our project acceptance. We brought this project 
we do our initial screening and we determine as a committee that this project is good. We're going to invest money into this project. Then what we would do next is actually start the development process. Development process is the fun stuff. <laughs> That's the process where you're able to engage with consultants. You're able to identify parties who you want to work with to, like you alluded to, whether it's doing these geotechnical analysis, you know, which is studying the soil to understand you know, how the foundation of these solar systems are going to be built to building out land how the equipment's going to get done, to working with the electric companies to understand how this system is going to get connected to the grid, what the costs are going to be, understanding a list of all the permits that are involved with the project, you know, everything from a, an access driveway permit to a special use permit from the local municipality. So understanding all of those items that are involved there are a very interesting process. That process, the development cycle, usually takes anywhere from six to nine months, depending on the size you know, of the project and the intricacies involved with it. That's really helpful to understand that. And I think one of the things that you mentioned, a lot of developers lose a lot of money pretty quickly oh, yeah. about how risky <laughs> it is and you know that you're doing all this sort of due diligence to determine, or business case, right? To determine whether it makes sense because like this is obviously at-risk capital that you could lose all of it very shortly. Yeah, I mean, that's the big item that you and I always speak about this. You know, when you look at development capital, you know, development capital is a very tricky item. In my opinion, you know, development capital is that part of the capital stack that is really, nobody has really solved that to a T. You know, when you look at the funds that are used to actually finance or pay for all these development costs, typically a developer like YSG, other groups like us will go through the exercise of you know, utilizing our own balance sheet to pay for these expenditures or go through the exercise of entering into some sort of joint you know, venture or some sort of partnership with other parties to mitigate that risk and spread it along to co-develop. You you know, so that's been fairly typical compared to other parts of the solar project where sponsor equity, you know, once that project is at NTP or shovel ready, for lack of better words, the risks are fairly, you know, mitigated and, you know, really aside from some sort of, you know, black swan event project is going to get built. So getting financing to finance the construction of the facility and term financing, and whether it's a mini perm or however mm-hmm. that's going to get set up, you know, those are very fluid markets. I would even say that sponsor equity is, is certainly obviously a very competitive space. Development capital is just not too many players out there that are really looking at that due to various reasons. You know, you talked about development capital. You could either put it on your balance sheet, you could partner with an investor and you kind of share proceeds related to a development fee or, you know, the developer gets a development fee and somehow there's some sort of cost attributed to the development capital or a straight development capital loan, which is usually a double digit interest rate loan (laughs) and it accrues on a monthly basis, which could be very challenging when the development's taking a lot longer. So the cost of capital related to developing that project, if it's not on your balance sheet. Yeah. And I think that's the key. I mean, you hit the nail on the head right there, right? You know, I mean, the key is, you know, to be able to develop this project in such a matter where you're able to manage that risk. So you've turned a piece of land, a vacant piece of land. You've been able to secure all the necessary agreements. You're capable of using that as collateral. You know, you've completed your studies with the local utility where you actually have an interconnection agreement that you have permits, you have all of these documents that you can actually collateralize. 
realize the beauty of that is once you have collateral, you know, you're able to do a lot and it provides a lot of value for those projects and even, you know, enables you to kind of do some of the things that you're mentioning about actually securing debt on a project level, which can certainly be tricky and can be expensive. It's certainly an, an exercise that you know, should be taken carefully. Yeah, definitely. That's great advice for the development community to hear and that people are going through all the time that you're talking oh, yeah. about. Can you talk about what makes a good solar project? You kind of talked about it a little bit generally, but it would be yeah. great if you could be more specific. Sure, sure. So, I mean, things that we're always looking for from a project is ease of construction. And I'm going to go in just such a random order just because of like the things of how my mind is. Random is, order is yeah, great. Yeah, exactly. But first thing I could think about is constructability. Ease of constructability is always ideal. So certainly, you know, I would say it's fairly underrated. Just look at the topography. It's a very simple exercise. Understand to make sure that area is flat. If there's site clearing required, get some quotes on, you know, remove all those stumps, get everything cleared, understand exactly what's involved there, all your civil work that has to get done. You know, constructability is a big item and constructability can be looked at very easily. You know, it's a very easy thing to do. There's a lot of things that are unknown that I'm not going to be able to know. I have to really take some educated speculations on. That being said, another big item is property taxes. We've had projects that literally have gotten permitted. We've gone through that process and have been ready to build and then show has been stopped by a local school district that you know may not have be managing their funds properly and they're looking to charge a solar project a tremendous amount of money and that's a big thing you know when you're getting to local communities and projects are being built this is nothing particular towards solar but municipalities are always typically looking at how to generate money you know <laughs> what's in it for me you know that sure. always old thing I think that's a big discussion you know at YSG you know like right now we're in the process we have another property that we're working on developing. It's about 100 acres. It's in Con Ed territory. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a really nice project. But that site, we actually had a meeting with the municipality and that site has a property on that site. And then we're not going to use it. We just want the land and things along those lines. But there's different areas and ways if you can collaborate and work together you know, with those municipalities and find things of what they're looking for and how to work together. I think that's important to do early on. And again, you know, doesn't cost anything, just a conversation, communicating with them. The biggest item, interconnection. You know, and people tell you sure. this all the time. <laughs> you know, if you don't have interconnection, you don't have a project, right? So interconnection, you know, on that cycle is really going through the exercise of understanding how close your project is to the electrical feeder, whether it's a distributed generation project, you'd be connecting to a three-phase power line. Typically, if it's an excess of one megawatt, you want to connect to a 12 kV power line between 12 and 32 kV. And if it's a larger facility, you know, you're going to want to look closer towards that 32 kV up. And really that benchmark, you know, for the power lines, about 69 kV, pretty much what we call sub-transmission. Anything above that is a transmission, you know, project, which I would consider utility scale. So how close are you to that wire? How close are you to the substation? Rule of thumb has always been two miles, but ideally you start the substation, you know, work your way out. You know, that's always key. Make sure there's no environmental issues, endangered species, things along those lines, archaeological items on the site. Again, all items you could screen, you know, pretty quickly. Take a look at your site, make sure you have a clean title. There's no delinquencies that are going to prevent you from securing your title insurance. And 
probably one of the biggest items you look at, Benoit, is the power <laughs> contract. <laughs> yeah, for you sure. know, what's the revenue side? You know, how are these individuals, these investors, these sponsors, how are they going to make their money? So what type of power contracts we have? What is the term of this agreement? And uh, what are the conditions? What's the credit profile of the individual buying that power? The better the credit profile terms and, you know, getting into those items, we take all of that information I just talked about and all that information is going to get translated into the economic business case. We take all of that and now we look at our IRR. <laughs> you know, what is our IRR? Because it doesn't matter if you're selling a power contract to Amazon, your project looks great. If your IRR is not looking good, there's a great chance your project is never going to see the light of day. <laughs> For sure. And you know how difficult that is. There's so many different factors and things are moving so quickly. So... No, there really is. And, you know, I think it's such an interesting trend. And, you know, at the same time, right now with the conditions, financial markets, and the fact that there's so much money that is out there looking to be deployed, the fact that solar is such a proven technology at this point, and the profile looks more and more like uh, some sort of fixed income asset than anything else or has been treated like that. There's the returns certainly, you know, have decreased in the last few years, which has caused a lot of new players to enter the market looking at, at at purchasing projects. Yeah, for sure. There's so many great points that you made. And really, that's a great like summary of what makes a good project and financeability of the project and how that's important, how much capital is coming into the industry. People are getting comfortable and it's more like an annuity type of investment where the IRR no, and I think kind of just close the loop on that discussion point, you know, really the beautiful item too is if you look at the actual points of development capital and you compare this development capital to other profiles, you know, when you look at the returns, you're seeing returns of, you know, very similar to growth capital, you know, venture capital. When you look at growth capital returns, these double digit returns and, you know, amazing multiples on your capital that you're receiving from developing in projects, and then you have a risk profile of an infrastructure asset. It's just a beautiful item, you know, and it's amazing to see from a finance perspective to be able to see a product. It could have that feel of uh, a municipal bonds. As an example, you look at New Jersey when you have a T-Rec or S-Rec too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, exactly. Whatever they're calling it these days. You have these, you know, these guarantees. You're really, you know, underwriting New Jersey's ability to stand behind their policies, right? And then, you know, when you have higher returns, beautiful item. So... As a leading authority in the solar industry, life gets very busy. In addition to traveling the world as a speaker and for my entrepreneurial ventures, I'm a son, friend, investor, and entrepreneur. And when it comes to delivering a great sounding show for my listeners, I choose Podcast Laundry. All I have to do is record and send and the rest is done. They do the dirty work of podcasting for me. Yes, social media graphics, quotes, show notes, master editing, and much more. All I have to do is record. So if you're a busy podcaster like me with an engaged audience and want to free up your time to do more of what you love like going to the gym or spending time with loved ones go to podcastlaundry.com to schedule your consultation or call 347-871-8273 that's podcastlaundry.com or 347-871-8273 yeah, definitely. That's a great way to close the loop. You know, you talked a little bit about markets that you're focusing on. You mentioned New York, New Jersey. Can you talk about like what are good markets to develop solar in the US? Yeah, sure. So I'll talk about some good markets, some markets to kind of stay away from as well, too, or just maybe just to be cautious about. So I think just kind of summarize, you know, on the Northeast. So I would say Maine, 
was a really amazing project with the net energy billing program. You know, got a lot of attraction, really amazing tariffs, 16, 17 plus cents per kilowatt hour that projects were receiving, you know, on the distributed generation scale. Lots of utility projects were being awarded in that market as well. Problem that has occurred in Maine is that there was so much activity, you know, that there's more DG projects than energy consumers. So that's a big item to balance out is how much energy is being generated, how much energy is being consumed. If there's not enough people to buy the power, what do you do? You know, that's a very real issue that encountered up in Maine. And the other issue that always piggybacks that is the electrical infrastructure. The electrical infrastructure in Maine could not accommodate, you know, any of these projects. So you actually could not even connect to the electrical grid and CMP territory because of everything that had occurred there. That was just another natural item that piggybacked what occurred in Maine to the point that the utility had ended up going back and adjusting some of the rates for interconnection agreements, which you know nobody likes to get. <laughs> for sure, no, that's a nightmare. Yeah, so I think that's something you know of a weary item. Interested to see kind of what happens with that market as well. Interesting market, you know, just on the flip side of that, you can look at areas like Maryland, which is a lot of attraction as well. And Benoit, I'm interested to hear your sure. thoughts on the S-Rack there too, because I know that's always been a big item that has actually always fluctuated with their compliance payments, you know, that have occurred. But I think the fact of some of these pilot programs with Community Solar, particularly with you know BG&E and Papco and some of these utilities, that's been a very interesting market, to say the least of that. But just kind of touching on that market, what are your thoughts on the SREX in Maryland? So yeah, Maryland's SREX prices are like right now around, I think, $77 oh, wow. okay. for energy year 2021. And the SACP, not to bore people, that's the penalty. It's basically yep. the highest the price could be, yep. is actually going down substantially the next few years. But what Maryland's did was like increase the compliance obligation. Okay. So that there's a lot more demand, demand. for it. So then that the SRACs will trade near the SACP, meaning a small discount. Small spread, yeah. But yeah, like Maryland's a great market with the community solar pilot, as you mentioned. Yes. You know, the SREC prices are a little bit higher. Sure. I feel like yeah, they've constru- crept up. No, they've crept up for sure. Have. I mean, there were. At a certain time, it was only like twenty to thirty dollars. So that's what seventy-seven dollars is actually pretty, yeah. pretty high for Maryland. And then you know you have high residential retail rates. That's right. And the cost, hopefully, of construction would yeah. be lower than other states. And uh, yeah, so I think Maryland is definitely a market to keep our eyes on. You know, interesting sure. market. The pilot you know, program. Uh, exactly. You have markets like Illinois that also just got a nice little refresher. Illinois gave everyone a little bad taste just because the lottery setup of that. A lot of developers. Looking at developing projects, putting a lot of money at risk. You know, a few folks being awarded that I'm sure we're very happy, and then a few others that, you know, are probably not. <laughs> yeah, for sure. But you know, I sounds think, like the New Jersey community solar. Yeah. Oh man. <laughs> no, I mean it's a similar story that you hear a lot with these competitive solicitations, just like anything else. They need to have an edge. So I think that's something to be aware of. We've been tracking a lot with Michigan, you know, right now. So Michigan, a few years ago, there was a lot of these PERPA projects, you know, that had occurred. There was actually a, a lawsuit that occurred with one developer that I won't name and one of the utilities, and you know, kind of the settlement that 
that had occurred was that a certain amount of megawatts of PERPA contracts would be awarded. So that was floating around for a good amount and caused a lot of nice contracts to be built in Michigan and starts built some momentum. That being said, Michigan is definitely looking at community solar programs right now, you know, electrical vehicles, energy storage. So Michigan is definitely a market to watch. You know, Minnesota, I feel like is a fairly fluid market, you know, although these projects, especially on the DG side, are only about one megawatt in capacity. But I think it's the predictability of that is fairly nice. Arkansas, which is an interesting market. <laughs> you know, so I think Arkansas actually we love and uh, dealing with Entergy Arkansas. They have an interesting program for essentially aggregated net metering, which is remote net metering. And their aggregated net metering program allows capacity up to 20 megawatts in capacity, which is actually huge. You know, I don't know any other state that has a net metering policy up to 20 megawatts. I think it's kind of crazy. I think it's great. You know, I think the one item that needs to get solved in that market is the fact that when you have a program where it's remote net metering, the load and the generation need to match. So for me to do a 20 megawatt project, I need to have a buyer who uses 20 megawatts. We have Walmart who has a headquarters there and was very vocal in actually getting this amazing policy enacted in 2019 in Arkansas. They are very vocal in getting this done. But aside from that, you know, and I know there is larger entities out there, you know, I think that is something that they need to adjust from a policy side of it is really working to have some more leniency and maybe community solar or just, you know, allow the remote net mirroring program to take multiple off takers because their tariff, I think it was, geez, 10 or 11 cents. Oh, that's great. Yeah. So if you have 10 or 11 cents on 20 megawatts, you're set. <laughs> you know, I don't have to say too much more. You know, you're in a good situation. You have that sizing. Aside from that, Arkansas also did have just an RFP for larger projects as well. You know, that recently occurred on the utility scale side, depending on where it was, whether there was connecting on the SPP, you know, side or whatever market was going into Virginia. Sure, Virginia. Yeah, you had a lot of good stuff in Virginia too, aren't you? You're involved. Yeah, for sure. Looking a lot at Virginia. Yeah. What are your thoughts on Virginia? You know, Virginia is a great solar market. It's still actually relatively early. Yeah. Really, a lot of it's done through an RFP process. Yes. A lot of corporate PPAs are being done, utility scale. Yep. Because there are a lot of data centers in Virginia and Northern. They're requiring 100% renewables. Also, Virginia, I think, has come out with the community solar program recently, and they're looking into having a rec as well in the future. So definitely like Virginia... Yeah, I'm interested to see what happens, you know, what's going to happen in Virginia as well, just because of the political environment as well, you know, how how everything, what the future of the market is. But I know YSG is actively developing projects in that Dominion territory. We've always had a pretty good outlook on Virginia. And they also have a really interesting energy storage program where, you know, just like many other utilities, the utility is obligated to procure energy storage Mm -hmm. through their solicitations over the next multiple years. But yeah, lots of interesting stuff. I think that's definitely an area to watch. Let's think about other areas that have, I feel like Pennsylvania, people have been talking about forever. (laughs) What's going on with Pennsylvania? (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, Pennsylvania has had like a community solar legislation. How many years? That's really been going, it's a long time. I think it's like two, two and a half years. So like some proposed changes to the REC program to increase. For some reason, there's still a lot of development in Pennsylvania, but not how much it could be Right. Supportive legislator, but everyone's always talking about Pennsylvania oh, being man. the next big market. 
Yeah, people have been talking about that for a while. I just feel like it's almost even longer that I've heard. I've been tracking that and just trying to see some sort of movement. Oh, yeah. But I remember at one time years ago, it was turning out to be a decent market with the SRAC. Yes. And then that just got plummeted. It plummeted. <laughs> it was an oversupply, essentially. Yeah. So, so many projects got built, which lowered the SREC price. Yeah. Also, Pennsylvania allows out-of-state out of state, SRECs right? to come in, yeah. but now they've fixed the law fixed where it's that, only right? in-state, but it's going to take a certain amount of years to calibrate. to calibrate that. Actually, Pennsylvania is like an extremely oversupplied when it comes from a REC perspective, SRECs specifically. So... Yeah, so I think that's, I mean, we have some positions in Pennsylvania. We do see value long-term. The question is when, but we do see value there long-term. New Mexico, I would be careful with. I know a lot of people are just talking, New Mexico, New Mexico, let's go to New Mexico. You know, you got sites there. I'm not really into the New Mexico. I mean, a lot that we've seen with the annual capacity, I think is only 200 megawatts, which is not that great. Yeah, it's very small. And top of that, if you actually look at some of the interconnection guidelines, you know, that they have, if the circuit, the electrical lines that you're connecting to, if your generation exceeds 50% of the amount of load that's on that circuit, you know, they actually require you to have a dedicated feeder, you know, which is oh, really wow. expensive. So I think that there is just some technical issues with the way that they're requiring solar DG projects to be interconnected to the grid, which is going to increase costs. You know, a lot of unknowns when people get their studies and be like, oh man, this is expensive. Mm-hmm. And the fact that the you know, capacity is only 200 megs, but program is still not open right now. You know, it's like in the process of being open, but we would just be really cautious with that. Connecticut, I think Connecticut is a market, you know, that's following a few other trends. They're really just looking at meeting their renewable energy goals through wind. You know, they're looking at that as satisfying a lot of their macro goals, you know, on a micro scale. I think they're more in favor of on-site generation. I know they have a big push for standalone energy storage, but aside from that, their community solar program was not that successful at all. I don't, I think maybe 10 projects. I don't don't even know of that, but it got built. But yeah, I know it's the market, you know, I know and permitting costs and permitting and siting Connecticut is never an easy item. So I think that's something to be cautious on. Is YSG involved in energy storage? Actually, we have. It's funny enough because everyone's talking energy storage these days. (laughs) (laughs) It's Uh, the hot new word in solar that's been big for five years. Yeah, it really is. It's the hot. (laughs) Everyone's energy storage. At the end of the day, I think, yes, you know, we're definitely interested in energy storage. You know, we are working actively. Actually, have an amazing, you know, standalone utility scale project that's under development. Really, you know, amazing project for a large project that we're very excited. But I think with anything else... There's so many different ways those projects can be approached. It's going to be a really interesting market. Obviously, we think we've all heard everyone coming with that analogy that energy storage is where solar was 10 years ago. For sure. I'm pricing. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> but at the same time, I think energy storage, there's some certainly big differences. I mean, it gets me so excited even think about energy storage. You know, I don't know if you saw that recently that Tesla has been like quietly building up some of their trading activities on the energy, on their power desks, you know, for their energy storage. But there's just so much opportunity the way that that grid is going to operate with the ability to store energy effectively, like absolutely amazing. Yeah, it's a game changer if you think Jeez, about it. It really is. It's a dynamic grid and can control both you know, consumption and also generation. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that's instantaneously. The, instantaneously, and I mean, when you look at these lithium ion, you know, these are not designed for long-term storage at all. You know, these are short-term type of components. But the fact of the matter is, when you look at wind generation, solar energy storage, and you comparing all these profiles together, you start to really look more and more like a traditional, conventional fossil fuel power plant that you have there. So it's really interesting. I think there's so many different business models. <laughs> Definitely. So I think that can be tricky, you know, from a business standpoint. It's like, where do you start? Even from a developer, right? Like what type of the business do you get into? You know, how do you get a project built? How do you get a project financed energy storage, right? Imagine doing the due diligence on a storage project like that, like all the items that need to get done. And so look at a revenue profile that's going to support service coverage ratios and all the other metrics that are importance of financing these projects. So it's really interesting. I think it certainly requires the proper resources to get implemented. Yeah, definitely. Those are all great points about energy storage. And the key thing is you can't really right now at least get long-term contracting for the many different revenue sources of the battery, which you were mentioning, which makes it more challenging to do the financing because you were mentioning, obviously for solar, it's a lot easier to you know get a long-term contract right. for the power offtake, but it's a little more Yeah, I would say I think like the easiest item to do and the path of least resistance, you know, especially if you're looking at a financier, you know, or sponsor, investor, whatever you want to call them, someone who's a little more conservative Mm -hmm. and is really looking for a project that is more of an infrastructure project versus a fund that is really, you know, maybe out of Houston, Texas looking to speculate. Because I think those are two different types of organizations, right? In infrastructure funds versus, you know, somebody speculating on the power pricing hitting $9,000 a megawatt hour. <laughs> so I think this the safest bet is a tolling agreement, right? You know, having a nice tolling agreement with the utility offtaker for an extended duration of time. That's what these battery manufacturers and companies are looking at as their lifespan of their equipment of 20 years. That being said, so I think the tolling agreement is probably the more conservative and, you know, more of what I would look at as like utility utility scale, PPA, very traditional versus, you know, a merchant wind project, which could be like your merchant storage project where it's, you're taking merchant risk, you know, and you're starting to look at forward curves and really speculating. This has really been an interesting interview. Can you talk about like some trends that you're seeing maybe in solar that our audience would be interested in hearing about outside of obviously like storage and yeah, 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 no, definitely. So I think one point is I would say how educated, you know, even the attorneys negotiating these land lease agreements you know, have gotten. <laughs> you know, when, when I hear our acquisition team saying the attorney wants to know what the wattage of our panels are because they know that industry is moving towards 800 watt panels and they're talking about pricing out a deal on a per megawatt basis versus a per acre basis because they want to make sure their client has all their information to make the right decision and their client is a, a farmer in you know, the middle of Illinois. Sure. Where, you know, so, so when we hear like conversations like that coming from you know traditional lawyers and the vast experience that they have of negotiating these agreements on behalf of their clients, it's a beautiful thing, right? You know, it's showing the maturity of the market and the fact that these attorneys have really, they know what they're doing and it's not just they're able to advise their clients. And there is that trend, you know, that is a very accurate statement. We are seeing these modules, you know, the wattage of them really go through the roof. Past couple of years ago, you started to see a trend towards the bifacial, which got very popular. Other item that has been going on past couple of years already, you know, has been the single axis trackers. I'm actually interested to see if the dual axis trackers will come on next. I think that would be, you know, an interesting kind of play onto that. 
I think another component that you're starting to see is a lot of projects that are in service, people going back and doing renovations to their solar project. For sure. That's going to be huge. <laughs> yeah. I thought it was like, I was like, renovations. I was like, what do we own? An apartment complex? <laughs> <laughs> it just sounded so odd. We're, yeah, we're doing some renovations on our project. But no, it's, I mean, that's an opportunity to refinance and, Definitely. you know, again, just some renovations and upgrades and things like that, adjust inverters and, you know, all these different components. It's technology advances to be able to do this, whether it's you know, smart inverters and things like that. I think those are some interesting trends. Even on the smart inverters, you know, be able to kind of coordinate. I think a real big problem that we're going to have is our electrical grid. Nobody really talks about the electrical grid, you know, be able to interconnect to the grid and be able to have smart inverter technology that can communicate and curtail energy at certain times of the day when it needs to be able to maximize. I think that's been studied more and more by these ERI groups and all these folks that are doing an amazing job studying these items. That's really great. You know, it's amazing, even traditional commercial industrial off-takers, but even on the solar side of it too. Yeah, these are all a lot of great trends. You know, what we did in the episode nine of the podcast was talked about like a book recommendation. And I thought it was a really great book. It was actually from Rocky <laughs> Aoki. And it was a memory. really great book. Are there any book suggestions that you have now? I know you read a lot. and Yeah, no, I definitely appreciate that. And you know, it's actually one funny item. I will really encourage everyone also to jump onto Audible or even just like, you know, YouTube some books. Because that's the other item too. You know, obviously there's such a pleasure in opening up a book and chilling out in a hammock or whatever it is. And <laughs> yeah. like, you know, literally reading really interesting story. But also definitely encourage encourage you know, anybody who's not utilizing Audible as well. You know, it's another great way that you can kind of rummage through and listen to some amazing content while you're going through your daily commute or in your vehicle traveling. Yeah, but definitely some really interesting books, you know, I would say that come across recently. I think the book we were talking about before I mentioned was Rumsfeld Rules with Donald Rumsfeld. Essentially what he did over there, that book was an interesting concept. Throughout his life, he actually always, you know, documented different rules that he thought were really interesting. And he took all of those rules and basically put them in, for lack of a better word, like a shoebox, you know, wrote them down on notes and put them down there and then compiled all of these notes and then built his own rule book. And he references where he had that information from as well, too. Wow. So I thought it was an amazing book. You know, it's a shame. I just like right after I actually finished reading that book and then unfortunately I heard about his passing, but amazing man, amazing legacy. And, you know, I know he was in his 80s. I'm sure he had an amazing you know, life and family as well, too. So I think that was a great book. You know, certainly highly recommended to any of the listeners and folks along that lines. Read an amazing book on the story of McKinsey as well and the firm. It's a really interesting read. You know, it goes into some nice details about the founding of McKinsey and some of their corporate culture, really what has made them stand out as an organization and really building that consulting industry. Consulting was not what consulting is today when they started that sector. You know, they literally made a whole entire business and took, you know, something from traditional accounting principles to business consulting and really combined these both, their market leadership their corporate culture is just absolutely amazing. So that's a great book. Another great book, Power Broker, great book that talks about Robert Moses. This one actually just recently started, so can't give you too much of insight. But again, another very interesting read. Another man with a great vision who has really some great accomplishments, you know, especially locally. And these are the items you see, uh, you know, just being a local New Yorker, you know, Long Island, <laughs> and you see the names and you're just, what is that? 
that. And yeah. Then, uh, you, know, you kind of read a little bit more about these folks who just really made a difference and amazing stuff to read. So yeah, those are some really good books, you know, highly recommend everybody checking out. Yeah, definitely. Those are great suggestions. We'll have it on the notes of the podcast. I appreciate you sharing your book list. I noticed, as we've talked about before, that it's like biographies that you tend to gravitate towards. And I think that's really interesting. Yeah, no, it's funny that you bring that up. Someone else told me that too. It's actually my barber. He was was talking to him about the books too. And he was telling me about him reading all these nonfiction books. And I was like, I don't know if I'm into that because I just like, I'm just not that type of guy. Like last time I played a video game was like NES or like Sega Genesis. Oh, wow. That's like, a long time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like it's like, I just like don't no play PS5. games like that. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like so I just could not get that nonfiction or like game type of mentality. But I get it. You know, I mean, there's definitely that enjoyment and appreciation of it. He kind of explains to me as well because he's big into some like fiction books as well. My ideal books has always been on biographies, you know, really understanding people and really kind of studying that psyche and things along those lines. I always enjoy reading books like that. Also enjoy just reading kind of like books on learning different topics, whether it's, you know, engineering or different components that have attracted my interest. Maybe next episode I'll have some like, you know, some crazy fiction or like yeah. <laughs> some wild I'll have to try to diversify uh, or not. I can be somewhat of a fairly boring in that stage of fairly predictable. <laughs> <laughs> Well, they're all great book suggestions. I can't wait to read it. No, please do. I hope you do get a chance to check them out and definitely hope, you know, some folks as well. Yeah, definitely. That's great advice. This has been an amazing interview on the Solar Maverick podcast. I appreciate your time, David. If people wanted to learn more about you and YSG, what's the best way for them to do that? Benoit, it's literally always a pleasure catching up. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> you know, I actually, uh, you know, always use your tagline. Let's get into let's it. Get into it. <laughs> <laughs> I literally think I use that with my wife. I'm like, all right, let's get into let's it. Let's get into it. <laughs> it's funny because you always use it actually when we're together in a meeting or on a call. So yeah. I'm laughing. He's like, isn't that your tagline? Yeah, it's you your tagline. No, it's a so. great tagline. It really is. But no, check us out on LinkedIn. You know, so YSG Solar, check out our LinkedIn page follow us. You can follow all the amazing stuff that we're doing. You know, we have some really innovative, amazing projects. Our objective is really looking at supporting the transformation of the electrical grid. Our vision as an organization is we're looking to see 100% of the energy come from renewable sources, you know, such as solar, winds, and energy storage. We're looking at that collaboration between other like-minded individuals, seeing a world where we have 100% electric vehicles. We have 100% of energy coming from solar winds in the United States, you know, in these clean sources of energy where we have the ability to export solar and wind energy across the state and even across countries. We're looking for a world where amazing projects that these can be implemented. YSG is always looking for like-minded talent, people who share that vision and are looking to make those accomplishments and support our organization and other organizations like us. No, thank you so much, Benoit. Look forward to chopping it up again real soon. Yeah, for sure. I mean, this is been very educational. So I appreciate you imparting your wisdom about the best ways to develop. I think our audience will find this very valuable. I've learned a lot from this conversation. And again, thank you. I appreciate you being on, you know, one of the earlier episodes and coming back now making time for this. So it was really interesting to hear your mission statement as well. No, thank you. I really appreciate that. And so if you have not subscribed, hit the subscribe button. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. We're on the hundred and something episode. And, uh, you know, before we know it, We'll be on the thousandth episode, you know, so definitely keep following and keep listening. Thank you. Thanks. 
Thanks for listening to the Solar Maverick Podcast. The Solar Maverick Podcast is brought to you by Renew Energy. We're a solar development and consulting firm. If you believe that this podcast is adding value to you, please give us a five-star review and share with those that you think could benefit from this information. Please email all questions, suggestions, and feedback to info at renewenergy.com. That's I-N-F-O at R-E-N-E-U energy.com. The Solar Maverick Podcast is produced by Podcast Laundry and executive produced by Benoit Thangin and Kevin Y. Brown.